All right, brothers and sisters, it's time to take out our Bibles together, if you will. Turn with me to the Old Testament book of Micah once again. Micah, chapter 2, is where we'll be. This is our third week in the book of Micah. We'll cover the entire chapter of chapter 2 today. It's only 13 verses long. Micah, chapter 2. Now, last week and this week were both warnings. Warnings in the book of Micah. This is a warning once again. And so, this week we look at Micah chapter 2, and it's a common theme in warnings. It's a common theme in great disasters that could have been avoided. It's a common theme with leaders who fall that they don't heed the warnings that should apply to them. The warnings that they see, the warnings that come to them, they do not heed. They think there's no way that we can fail. Surely the warnings apply to most normal people, but not I, not us. We cannot fail. How many times have we seen this kind of thinking? We think about the the Titanic, perhaps one of the greatest object lessons in, in history, right? We cannot fail. This cannot be sunk. We think about the financial crisis of 2008, and all the banks and all the financial leaders thinking those exact things. These warnings don't apply to us. There's no way we can fail. We think of the lifestyles of celebrities or young adults from very rich families. I've seen it in myself. I think all of us, if we take an honest look at ourselves, can say that we have thought these things at times as well. I'm 36 years old. Much of my short adult life has been spent learning these lessons. Lessons like, I'm not the exception to the rule. Warnings for normal people actually do apply to me, and I am not invincible. I'm still learning those lessons. In many ways, we have to learn those lessons the hard ways. The Lord convicted me years ago of my arrogance, and I know this might sound silly to some of you, but my arrogance... When it comes to severe weather, years ago, every time a tornado warning would come on the the, the TV screen or across the radio airwaves, I would dismiss it out of hand every time. Why? Because in my life, up to this point, I've never been hurt by a tornado. And so I thought, just because of that, it's never going to happen. And I forget when it was, but the Lord convicted me of that in a big way one year when I started to think, that's exactly the kind of arrogance that the Lord is pleased to to squash with something like a disaster. That's exactly the kind of arrogance that the Lord humbles. And I don't need to be like that, to think that I am above the warnings of weather, of the the Lord's work in the world. And just like those Leaders, just like those organizations that thought warnings don't apply to us, there's no way we can fail. There is a spiritual arrogance in the church today. There is a spiritual self-deception that Christians can have. It's infecting the church. And we see it here in Micah, and in many ways this text that we're about to read, almost 3,000 years old, is extraordinarily relevant for us today in 2021. Let's read our text. Micah chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It says, Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it, because it is in the power of their hand. 
They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster, from which you cannot remove your necks. And you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. In that day they shall take up a taunt song against you, and moan bitterly, and say, We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To an apostate, he allots our fields. Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob? Has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? But lately, my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly, with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest, because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. Now, I want you to see in this text how it's talking about this infestation of sin, this infection of sin. Look at verse 10. It kind of describes the whole thing. It says, Arise and go, for this is no place to rest, because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. The idea there is of an infectious disease. This uncleanness, this sin is infectious. Don't stay around. Don't come around here. Because this thing destroys, and it destroys with grievous destruction. What is it? It's the sin of spiritual arrogance and the sin of self-deception. This morning from our text, we're going to see three different ways that this applies to us. Number one, we're going to look at the arrogance of the wicked, which is spelled out here in the text. Number two, though, we're going to look at the arrogance of God's people. And number three, finally, we'll look at the deliverance of God. So first, the arrogance of the wicked. Look at verses 1 and 2 with me one more time. Verses 1 and 2, where it says, Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it's in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them. And take them away, they oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. Michael was saying, there is a day of reckoning coming for those who plot wickedness and evil. For those who come up with schemes to oppress the weak and the helpless, the Lord is coming. And he will not sit idly by forever and watch this take place. No, he will come and defend the helpless. There is a day of reckoning coming for the wicked. Many times as Christians, it might feel to us like the wicked prosper. 
We look out into the world and we see people who don't give a rip about the Lord or about holiness, and it seems like their lives are great. Their lives are wonderful. What in the world, God? How how is this happening? How can you let this happen? We look at people who devise wickedness, and it seems like they don't have to pay for it. There's no consequences. There's no one to bring them to justice. The Lord knew we would feel like that. You know how we know that? Because there's an entire psalm dedicated to just that feeling. Don't turn there, but let me read you a couple verses from Psalm 73. Psalm 73, it's an entire psalm dedicated to just that idea. In Psalm 73, verse 3, it says, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. You ever been there? You ever felt that way? I have. You look out at the the arrogant and the wicked, and they're prospering. And then we think, Psalm 73, verse 13, then we think, All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Has it been all in vain, Lord? Look at them out there and look at me. And and sometimes we've got to be honest. It's hard to follow Christ. We're denying ourselves. We're denying ourselves all of the pleasures of the world. We're denying our our very own desires many times. We're experiencing the, the, the ridicule and the side eyes and all of the persecutions that come with following Jesus in this world. And we look out and we, we, we think, well, look at their lives. It looks fantastic. Is this all in vain? Have I kept my heart clean in vain? Have I gone through all of this in vain? We see arrogant people with such power that it seems there are no consequences for their wickedness. They are so powerful that they can pray on the weak and no one can do a thing about it. We look out and we see politicians swindling people out of their money, taking away freedoms, and changing laws to fill their own pockets. And we think, no one's going to do a thing about that because they're so rich and so powerful. I certainly can't do anything about it. We see CEOs, governors, and influential athletic trainers abusing and harassing women whom they know do not have the money to defend themselves in court. We see terrorists plotting how to go into a village and slaughter parents and kidnap children because they know their government is not strong enough to do a thing about it. There are so many people in this world who do not have the power or the means to defend themselves against this kind of arrogant wickedness. And when they look at their oppressor, they see a power in them that is never checked. And so their only hope is the Lord. Their only hope is the Lord. They see abusers and oppressors getting away with their wickedness because of their power or their money or their celebrity status, and they have no one to appeal to, no one to uphold their cause, no one will bring these people to justice, and their only hope is God. But God is the best hope there is. God is a sure hope for people like this. Because look at verse 3. God is not sitting idly by. Verse 3, this says, Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster. Now look at the connection between that and verse 1. Verse 1 at the beginning, it says, Woe to those who devise wickedness on their beds. But then verse 3 says, Okay, you devise wickedness on your beds. I am devising 
disaster against you. And this, my friends, is utterly frightening. The idea that the Lord of all the earth is devising disaster against people. You see, God does not have knee-jerk reactions. His emotions do not explode. He does not lose control. He is deliberate in all that he does. And that makes this all the more frightening. If you've ever uh, read the book, The Count of Monte Cristo, or if you can't get through all 1,000 some odd pages of it and you've seen a movie... Count of Monte Cristo is all about this guy who gets horribly wronged by one of his friends. Edmund Dantes gets horribly wronged by his friend Fernand Mondego, who he, he thought was his friend, but he stabs him in the back. And Dantes ends up in jail, but he, he gets out through a, a, some amazing circumstances, and he spends years plotting his revenge, deliberately, calmly, coolly plotting his revenge. It's controlled. It's calculated. And that is a lot more frightening than an explosion of rage. God is devising, deliberately devising disaster against the wicked. There is hope. There is hope for those who are oppressed. There is hope for those who are attacked. There is hope for those whose oppressors and abusers seem like they are so powerful that no one will hold them to justice. Because God is the defender of the weak and the powerless. Our God is the defender of the weak and the powerless. And so the hope for all who are unjustly treated or abused or lied about or oppressed is that in the end, everyone must face the judgment seat of God. The judgment seat of the God of justice. 2 Corinthians verse 5 says, We must all stand before the Lord. We must all stand before His judgment and give an account of everything that we have done in the body, whether good or evil. And so one day, those who seem like they are too powerful to be held accountable will face the all-powerful judge. One day, all abusers will face the defender of those they have abused. One day, all terrorists will be humbled and brought low before the terror of all those who love evil. evil. And one day, All who held on to Christ, in spite of abuse, ridicule, oppression, and persecution, one day they will be vindicated. This is the hope that God holds out to those who are weak and those who are powerless. But that was just the arrogance of the wicked. Now we need to examine what our text says about the arrogance of God's people. And once again, we must remind ourselves... That these warnings were not just for the pagans who did not know God. No, Micah is prophesying to the Israelites. These words of God are directed at the Israelites, at God's people. And so we must always remember our tendency to think that this only applies to other people out there. See, that was, that was really easy going through that first part of the sermon. Because we all think, oh... Those wicked people out there, they're going to get theirs, right? That's the spiritual arrogance and self-deception that is infecting and infesting the church. That right there. That it's all about someone else. It's all about those people out there. We Christians, we have a tendency to hear about sin and completely miss how it applies to our lives 
and our hearts. We said it last week, but inside of all of us, there's a little Pharisee praying arrogantly before God, God, I thank you that I am not like those other men. Look at verse 1. I'm going to show you how this applies to us. Verse 1, Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it's in the power of their hand to do so. They perform it because it's in the power of their hand to do so. But where do these deeds begin? Where do they begin? They begin in the mind. They begin in the heart. They devise these things on their bed. The beginning of verse 2 says they covet Coveting is a sin of the mind, a sin of the heart. And they carry out these wicked deeds because they can, but every single one of us must admit, every single one of us in here right now must admit that we would have done much more wickedness in our lives if we had just had the power to carry it out. We would have done much more wickedness in our lives if we thought we could have carried it out and got away with it with no real consequences. So lest we think this just applies to everyone else out there, the wicked people out there. Brothers and sisters, fantasies are sin just as much as the acting out. Because it all comes from our desires. There's a very simple and important question that we've got to ask from this text. Very simple, very important, but we've got to ask it of ourselves. Here it is. What kind of evil thoughts are we entertaining as we lie down to sleep at night? They devise this wickedness on their beds. What kind of evil thoughts are we entertaining? What kind of evil, sinful fantasies are we entertaining as we lie down to sleep at night and we think it's fine because it's just going to stay up here? It's never going to actually happen. I'm never going to actually do this. I don't really have the power to do that. I couldn't do it without any real consequences, so I would never do it. I'll just... Think about it. I'll just fantasize about it. I'll just enjoy my, my little world in my mind right here as I go to sleep. I'll take comfort in my sinful desires. You see, the, the tenth of the Ten Commandments is you shall not covet. You shall not covet. But what's really interesting about that commandment is there are, there are certain things it says in the book of Exodus chapter 20 there that you shouldn't covet. You shall not covet. And one of the things it says we shall not covet is our neighbor's wife. What's interesting about that is there's already a commandment against adultery. One of the Ten Commandments is you shall not commit adultery. But the Tenth Commandment is you shall not desire to commit adultery. See, the desire is sin just as much as the acting it out. Jesus said as much in Matthew chapter 5 when he was talking to the, the, the Pharisees and those around him in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. He's saying, you can murder your friend in your heart. You can murder that person in your heart. And never go through with it with your hands. And it's just as much a breaking of the Ten Commandments as the other. It's always been about the heart. This all comes from our desires, our sinful desires. We all have this evil lurking inside of us. 
Every single one of us. This is not just talking about people out there. This is not just talking about those wicked people. We all have this evil lurking inside of our own hearts. And so we must not only fight sin at the level of our outward deeds, we must fight it at the heart level. The pornography addict must not only have his access taken away, he must also deal with his heart so that he doesn't desire to look at those things. And so, just very practically, you might be asking, well, how do you, how do you fight at the heart level? How do you fight a battle, a spiritual battle at a heart level? And the only way I know how to do this, the only thing I know how to tell you, is you have to experience a greater satisfaction and a greater pleasure in the Lord. You have to experience the greater pleasure, the more lasting pleasure, the clean pleasure of the glory of God so that those other pleasures become less and less and less attractive and you do not want them anymore. You have to go to God consistently. Go to God in reading the Bible. And don't just read the Bible to to know more facts about the Bible. You go to the Bible for God. You want the Lord. We want Him, right? We want to know Him. We want to be satisfied in Him. And so we read His Word. Read His Word a little bit every day. Go to Him in prayer. Commune with Him. Do what you're doing right now. Worship with other Christians. Spend time around others that you see. They have it, right? They have it. I know they have it. I know they love the Lord more than anything in the world. I want to be around them. I want that to rub off on me, right? This is all fighting at the level of the heart versus just external battles. Fighting at the heart level. Trying to to allow God to reshape our desires, Because we have a spiritual arrogance, brothers and sisters. A spiritual arrogance that says, this stuff doesn't apply to me. But remember, it's not just the warnings don't apply to me. It's also the the spiritual arrogance of saying, I'm invincible. I could never fall. We're safe. We're Christians. We could never fall. That's what it says in verse 6. Look at verse 6. It says, quote, unquote, do not preach. And thus they preach. That's what they preach. They preach don't preach. Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. And then they say, disgrace will not overtake us. Disgrace will not overtake us. We're God's people. God's not going to do that to us. God's going to forgive us. That's his job. He has to, right? We don't need to change. We don't need to apply this stuff. to God, God loves us. We're his people. Disgrace would never overtake us. Notice what they're doing. They're intentionally suppressing the truth. They're intentionally turning away from it. They're doing what so many do today, sticking their, their, their fingers in their ears and going la, la, la and saying everything is fine. It's fine. They say, do not preach. And so preacher, we pay you to make us feel good. Don't go meddling into my heart. That's private. Don't you come attack my pet sins. Don't you convict me about my comfortable life. We pay you to make us feel good. We'll pay you as long as you're doing that. Let me tell you, that's a temptation for the pews, but the temptation goes both ways. And I just be be upfront with you. There's a very real temptation on this side of the pulpit to preach in such a way that just makes everybody nice and happy. You know why? That's job security, right? Just make everybody happy. Make everybody like you. There's there's a way that I can preach that will make all of you smile and think, 
He's such a nice, respectful young man who loves the Lord. He's always so uplifting and encouraging. Now, now be careful here. The, the sin of spiritual arrogance is so slippery, it's like trying to grab smoke, because it's probably even happening to some of us right now. It did as I was writing out this sermon. It happened to me. Because you can say that. You can say, I can preach in a way that will make, make everybody smile, make everybody think he's so nice. And immediately you start thinking of other churches. Immediately you start thinking of other churches who, oh, they don't preach on sin. Right? They, they don't preach on the tough stuff. That This is a problem with other places. Right? But I can even preach on sin and make it like that. I can even preach on sin here. And as long as I keep feeding our sense of that the really bad people are out there, then we're, we're right back to the Pharisee. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. We're right back to this spiritual arrogance and self-deception. Because I can preach against abortion, and everybody goes rah, rah, rah. I can preach against homosexuality, and everybody says amen. I can preach against transgenderism, Everybody says, that's right. But what if I start preaching against how we are so selfish with how we use our money? What if I start preaching against the way that some of us look down on the homeless and those in need in our community? What if I start talking about pornography? What if I start preaching about husbands who are ignoring God's call for you to lead your family spiritually? What if I start preaching about how some of us can't be bothered to reach out to the lost and the poor because we're too comfy and set in our ways? You notice how it got really quiet? What if I start meddling? That's what they used to call it. There's a lot of preachers out there who have job security because they do what 2 Timothy 4.3 says where it says the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. That's a temptation for the pews, but it's also a temptation for the preacher. And it's a real temptation. There's a lot of preachers who have job security because of this, and then there are a lot of preachers out there who get fired because they start meddling. They hit a little too close to the mark. Verse 6, don't preach. Don't preach like that. We're Christians. We're God's people. Don't you get into all my little pet sins. Don't you get into making us feel uncomfortable. It's not what we pay you for. Look at verse 11. Verse 11 is almost comedic. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies and say, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink. He would be the preacher for this people. The NIV says he would be just the preacher for this people. I want to preach to you about wine and strong drink and getting drunk. What would that verse say about Columbia Christian Church? Who would be just the preacher for us? In Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 14, God is talking about people who call themselves prophets. And he says... They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Now, a lot of times that's what we want, isn't it? A lot of times that's what we want. Let's let's be honest. Just a light healing, please. Nothing too deep. Nothing that will make me too uncomfortable. 
Nothing that will shake up my life in any significant way. I just kind of want a side order of Jesus. We want someone to say peace, peace to us. When in reality, what we need is Jesus to come in and declare war. Jesus does not heal wounds lightly, but he does heal them fully. Remember, chapter 1, Micah says you have an incurable wound. Those wounds cannot be healed lightly. Jesus does not heal wounds lightly. Jesus comes in and cleans house. And it is uncomfortable. But he heals them fully. And so we have to be honest with ourselves. And honest before the Lord. What are the sins that we have been refusing to acknowledge? God, would you, in your generosity and compassion, expose to us the sins that we have been refusing to acknowledge? It would be a gracious and generous wound from the Lord to expose our sin, not only to ourselves, but to those that we love that are around us. The best thing that can ever happen to a criminal is that they get caught. It's the best thing that could ever happen to them. God, would you expose our sins? God, what are the ways that we have arrogantly refused to let Jesus come in? And do the uncomfortable work of making us more holy. So there's not just an arrogance of the wicked out there. There's an arrogance of God's people in here. There's an arrogance inside every single one of us. An arrogance and a self-deception. Are we willing to look the truth in the face? God says at the end of uh, verse 7, Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? Even if they're uncomfortable, they do good to him who walks uprightly. To the person who genuinely wants to walk with the Lord, God's words, even when they're uncomfortable, are are an odd kind of joy, an odd kind of satisfaction. We welcome God's words, no no matter what they'll do, no matter where it goes, no matter how uncomfortable it makes it, we welcome the words of the Lord. God's people do. Now, finally, we want to see in our text the deliverance of God. The deliverance of God. Now, you might not see this in the text at first. You have to kind of read with an eye toward the mood of the text and read with with discernment. But verses 12 and 13 are verses of hope in the midst of verses of judgment. The, The mood should change as you get to verse 12, where he says, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. This is God's compassion and gentleness coming through. It says, He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. You see, God is the hope for the weak and for the oppressed. In God, there is hope for the weak and the oppressed. One day, God will right all wrongs. One day, God will stand in judgment over all evildoers, all abusers, all oppressors. In the language of the text, we are his sheep, and he will protect us from all wolves. One day, he will gather all those who hope in Jesus and give them rest, or as our text says, give them 
pasture. They will be like sheep. The remnant of Israel. You see that in verse 12, the remnant. There are so many who will be judged. There are so many who will be taken away. There are so many that God will destroy. And yet there is a remnant, a faithful remnant. You even see this in Paul's writing in Romans chapters 9 through 11 in the New Testament. It is not a remnant of physical Israel. It is a remnant of God's people who do not think that just because they are God's people that they are entitled. They do not presume upon God's grace and kindness, but they seek Him with holiness, with humility, and with a contrite heart. We quoted Isaiah 66 verse 2 last week. It's kind of a theme verse of the prophets. Isaiah 66, 2. Who is the one that the Lord looks to? Who does the Lord give favor to? What kind of person? It's the one who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at his word. Those are the people God wants. Humble, contrite in spirit, and trembling at his word. We are like sheep led by the great shepherd king. In John chapter 10, starting in verse 7, Jesus said to the people, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And that's what Jesus did. He laid down his life for the sheep. And so there is hope for the weak and the oppressed, but there is is even hope for the arrogant and self-deceived. There is even hope for the arrogant and self-deceived. If we humble ourselves before the Lord... If we will open our hearts to him and let him in and do whatever work he pleases, no matter how uncomfortable it might make us, in the end, we too can be saved. Never forget that when Jesus was on this earth, he taught about how the poor and the sinful and the irreligious were closer to the kingdom than the rich, the religious, and the respected of society. Never forget that. Because that means there is a spiritual danger in having a comfy life and having been raised to be a religious person. That means I need to look at myself and say, there's a spiritual danger in in the way my life is. If you have a comfy life, if you were raised to be a religious person, those things are not dangerous in and of themselves, not inherently. But Jesus did say, there is a danger in being rich. There is a danger in being religious. There's a danger there. That danger is spiritual pride, arrogance, and self-deception. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12 says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. That means it's good and healthy for us to stand back for, for a moment regularly and to ask ourselves, am I truly one of the sheep? Do I truly know the Lord? Or have I just been assuming I do this whole time? Do I truly know Jesus? Am I truly hungering and pursuing after God? Or have I just been assuming that because I I go to church and I grew up in a Christian family that I was? And so never forget, there's a spiritual danger there, but also never forget that Jesus died 
for all sins. Jesus died for all sin, even the sin of spiritual pride, even the sin of arrogance. While most of the Pharisees, it seemed, missed out on salvation completely, there was Nicodemus. And we know Nicodemus as the one who came to Jesus by night in John 3 and was asking sincere questions. We also know from continuing to read the Gospels that Nicodemus was there when Jesus died, taking care of the body. He didn't care what people thought anymore. He was ready to go all in. He was ready to be a full follower. Jesus can melt the heart even of the Pharisee. That means there's hope for, for even us, right? There's hope for all of us. There is hope for all of us at the cross because no one is outside the reach of God's grace. And so let's end it there. Let's spend some time now, brothers and sisters, in silent prayer and reflection. Each week after God's word to us, we want to spend time speaking words back to him, not just collectively as one person leads, but silently so that we can all respond to the Lord. He just spoke to you. Now what will you speak to him? Every one of us needs to respond to God, to the word that he has given us. So we'll give you time to do that in prayer right now for a few moments. After that, we'll come back together and we'll have an invitation time for people to respond publicly to God's word if they need to do so. So let's pray together.